new business model that could emerge would be separating the ownership of the aircraft from its usage. And we could call it Uberization. Welcome back to the Velocity Podcast. We are joined again by Jerome Bouchard and Ken Asso as they continue their conversation around the recovery of the aerospace industry post-COVID-19. We invite you to listen to the previous episode if you haven't already done so. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the Velocity Podcast. You are joined here again by myself, Jerome Bouchard, and my colleague, Ken Asso. We are both partners in the management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. Great to be speaking with you again today, Ken. Hi, Jerome. Yes, very happy to be continuing this conversation. We've got some great, interesting topics to cover today. If you haven't already had a listen to the previous episode, we were having a discussion around the aerospace industry's recovery from COVID-19, the current state of the industry, and then how it may potentially take up to five years to recover. Today, we will now have a discussion around new business models and the implications on the MRO aftermarket. Jerome, what is your view in terms of the kinds of decisions that OEMs and suppliers will need to make around production and models? I think some drastic evolutions are actually required. First of all, in terms of production rate and operational model for production, what we mean by that is maybe some simplification are expected. Today, the aerospace in Europe is quite complex from a logistics standpoint, for instance, with a lot of exchanges between several countries. So maybe the COVID-19 helps rationalizing the industrial system overall. I think another part will be, of course, an impact on the asset and the footprint of aerospace. Uh, There will be some difficult trade-off that will need to be made. There will be some factory, unfortunately, that may be shutting down. But at the same time, maybe in the midterm, I'm a firm believer in relocation of some of the aerospace activities, specifically in the system area, back to Europe or let's say back to high-cost country in general. And the last consequence will unfortunately be on the organization side. It's very sad to say, but we have seen already some layoff plans in the aerospace industry. Hopefully with the support of the government, of the big OEMs or private funds, we will limit the social damage. But there will be for a momentary time, maybe two to three years, a downsize to be expected in the aerospace industry. Yeah, there's going to be some painful steps. I think about specific models as well. The A380 is one where there's been significant discussion about retiring those airplanes, some decisions around new airplane production, the ability of the A380 to be a viable aircraft and to fill the aircraft. But thinking about the Boeing portfolio as well, there's the 777X that is going through its development and certification process. That's, of course, been pushed back on a couple of occasions, but there are signs that some air carriers are questioning whether they're ready to take delivery of expensive new airplanes. Think about some of the sub-models like 737 MAX 10 
very low orders for that model derivative and not as efficient as the Airbus product. The orders for the smaller and mid-sized 737 MAX are very strong, but around the edges. Question about 747s, of course, it passed for passenger service that is being phased out for cargo. It's still a quite a useful airplane, but it's a very low rate of production. And so will Boeing need to sacrifice production relative to 747? And as they're making painful cost-cutting decisions, are there similar model decisions that Airbus will be faced as well? Yes, there will definitely be some very difficult decision on Airbus product policy. You mentioned A380. That was already planned to stop in terms of production, but the acceleration of exit of the airline fleet is now a reality. Unfortunately for this aircraft that I love, if I may say so, but there will be as well a question mark for Airbus. If you take a look at the 330, for instance, will there be a real space in the market for this 330? If you compare it to his big brother, the 350, which is more recent, has a better range, better performance. But if you look as well at the 321 XLR, this 330 program may be well squeezed in between those two more recent and maybe more appealing aircraft. So its future may be under question. The new A330neo, so with a better engine and a bit more performance, may still have a small market share, but we are clearly seeing a fade-out of this particular program. Yeah, there just may be the need to retrench in terms of the models, especially to support lower rates of production and lower orders. Hey, Jerome, we talked a lot about Airbus and Boeing. What about the other aerospace firms? Do you have any thoughts on Comac, Embraer, and others? Yeah, I can talk about ATR. ATR, another European manufacturer. Well, we are seeing quite paradoxical situation because these regional aircraft, so turboprop, are quite resilient, in fact, to the decrease on the airline demand because they are quite small modules because Maybe they have a, a lower level of consumption and, and maybe lower maintenance costs if we compare to a, a 737 or an A320. But the airlines that are operating them are even more fragile than big airlines. So normally, uh, ATR operators are, let's say, three to six aircraft. They may be operating in some remote part of the world like Philippines Island or desert in Africa. So they have a very fragile business model and the order book has been drying over the last months for ATR and the capacity to produce those aircraft has been also drastically reduced probably from let's say 80 aircraft last year for most probably down to 2030 this year. Of course, it's been really interesting to watch the Boeing Embraer JV. Thought it made a ton of sense for the portfolio to be able to also get some benefits out of the very strong engineering capabilities. And then obviously following 
Airbus's success in working with Bombardier in the C-Series, there was a portfolio hole there for Boeing. Very disappointing to see that due to COVID-19, that JV didn't move forward. And so there's a lot of questions right now of whether Embraer can survive on their own. Will they seek a partner? Can they continue to stay private? And I think at the rate of production that they have on the commercial side, it's really going to be a decision for the Brazil government to decide whether they want a strong national aerospace industry. Of course, there's benefits both on the commercial and defense side to have those dual capabilities. But it's likely that the government will need to step in and support Embraer with funding to continue through the COVID-19 crisis over the next several years until the commercial side can stabilize. It's interesting to see other countries stepping in and expressing interest, but also, Jerome, we're seeing that as we move into the 2020s now, there's really a rise in the level of trade concerns, rise of regionalization and nationalization And in terms of the government stepping in, there's a real question of that 2000s, 2010s trend of globalization. So will other countries be able to step in and support Embraer? I don't know if that'll happen. It's a very good product line for Embraer, but frankly, it's a question of whether they have the scale to be able to manufacture and if they can meet the cost cost points that they need to hit. For Comec, it's also very, very interesting as well. The, the C919 is a pretty good product, and China has the ability to support that product. They're well over 30% of the narrow-body market. Uh, and so from that standpoint, it's a good airplane for domestic routes. There's some questions about international trade relationships, import substitution. The Chinese market could choose to utilize the 919 for particularly domestic routes. I think the question is whether production can meet the demand or if those airlines will continue to need Boeing and Airbus airplanes to support their growth and maintaining those fleets. But I think they're certainly there to stay in pretty good airplanes as well. They have a market. No, they do have a market with Comac, but for me, it remains a true question mark. This is a question everybody is asking, you know, what about Comac? What is the future of this company? Will they benefit of, let's say, the relatively weak positioning of Airbus and Boeing during the crisis? Or will they be affected as well by this crisis? It's for me a very tough question to answer. I do believe, like you can, that the strength of Comac is, of course, the uh, national domestic market of China. And we are seeing already a very strong sign of recovery in this market. And of course, this restart may question capacity of some manufacturer to capture that growth or that recovery. But at the same time, I'm afraid that Comac is too much focus on this particular internal market and that their partners, especially on the engine side, may also suffer from the crisis and deprioritize slightly the help to the Chinese manufacturer overall, leading to a more difficult situation. That's a great point. And I think it also underlines the fact that it's easy to design, produce, and launch an aircraft, 
but to produce at scale and hit those cost points and to have the supply chain integrated, that's another level of maturation in the development of a model and the development of an aerospace firm. And certainly those are real questions to absolutely Jerome. Let's talk now about the MRL aftermarket. For those who are listening to the podcast that aren't as familiar with the aftermarket, this is really about supporting the aircraft after it has been delivered. Everything from engineering, spare parts, maintenance of the aircraft, modifications that you make over the aircraft over its 30-year lifetime is all to do with the aftermarket. And as we look at the aftermarket, the state of the aftermarket, it's funny, before COVID-19, Oliver Wyman pushed out its annual MRO forecast where we predicted that MRO services globally would be over $90 billion in total size. And now, since COVID-19, we forecast that to be less than half of that, frankly, about $43 billion in size, which will clearly threaten the survival of many of the aftermarket suppliers. We've been seeing in the news that there have been some closures of facilities, but again, this is very early days. There's many more to come in the U.S., Jerome, we've seen the U.S. CARES Act support with funding through the end of the third quarter of this year. But beyond that, there is uncertainty. And really, what's going to happen thereafter is a question. We do know that over the next 10 years through 2030, the MRO market will recover. But over that 10-year period of time, there's going to be about $150 billion less in revenue than we originally forecasted early part of this year. And that's a massive evaporation of the business. But to come back to the root cause maybe of the massive drops you mentioned from 90 plus billion as a market size for MRO down to 43, I believe this is directly correlated to all of these aircraft that are parked and the temporary decrease in Italy's fleet. But I'm assuming, Ken, that there will be also opportunities related to early retirement, for instance. Could you tell us more about that? There's the opportunity for private equity to support the MRO industry and participate in a space where there's going to be sustained growth post-COVID-19, but they're certainly readying for activity to support many MRO providers and provide capital and liquidity. We're also seeing that the materials market, which has been around 60%, two-thirds of the total MRO market, largely been controlled by the original equipment manufacturers, and alternative solutions that are lower cost have struggled to gain market share. We're talking about PMA parts, DER repairs, and used serviceable material. But because of the sheer number of aircraft that are being accelerated for retirement, there's a significant potential for the rise of used serviceable material. A lot of older airplanes, but we're also seeing some midlife airplanes that are being staged for potential part out that could support the rise of used serviceable material. And so if there is opportunity for them to have the liquidity, the capital, to control those airplanes for part out, that could drive a shift towards the growth of USM. Certainly from the standpoint of many airlines, they prefer USM because it is OEM material. It's just used material that has been restored. And so you can get a discount associated with that. 
something they're quite interested in seeing today, given their cost pressures. But the question is, are the OEs interested as well in this uh, use and serviceable material trend? Do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, I think carriers are, partly because they just want a cheaper solution, and USM can provide that. And the second thing is, it is original OEM product, and so particularly with those air carriers that put a premium on that, or for leased airplanes where the return provisions require OEM product, those are important factors. So we think that the USM market will go from high single digits penetration rate for all material and grow from 12, 13% plus over the next several years. Are there other examples of business models, Jerome, where you think there'll be an opportunity in this environment for them to grow? I believe a new business model that could emerge would be separating the ownership of the aircraft from its usage. And we could call it Uberization, if you wish, of aircraft. But I'm quite convinced that in order to place a new aircraft on the market for OEMs, but also for leasers to actually encourage the airline taking on their aircraft, we will have some sort of extended leasing packages that will also cover services such as maintenance, why not flight operation support, or even when proposing crews as well, uh, so that the airline can eventually focus on their core value added, which is actually flying the aircraft, and less uh, taking care about the maintenance or the acquisition aspect. But what about you, Ken? Do you see even innovations or breakthrough in the MRO or aftermarket? I think the focus so much is on low costs, and I think there's constraint on capital to deploy for new innovations. And so I wonder how much will be invested. I do think that digital continues to be a very high-priority investment, one that can drive new breakthroughs in innovation, but also simultaneously drive more efficiency in terms of the assets deployed and capital deployed. So I think investments in analytics, in digital, will continue to be funded to support the MROs. And certainly the larger OEMs, larger MROs are making those investments I do like your idea, though, Jerome, about the Uberization, simply because we talked about the the risk of white tails being produced. You want to put those assets to work. You don't want them to be sitting idle for too long as well. And given the fact that air carriers will want to variableize their costs, they may be interested in having certain portions of their fleet by the drink. I think that's an interesting model, one to watch. And if we take a step back now and close the loop now that we have seen all the steps of the aerospace value chain, what are your main perspectives towards 2030, Ken? Are you still optimistic about this sector? For all of the challenges right now, and certainly this is profound, this is still a sector that bounces back in aerospace and air travel. I'm very optimistic over the long term. Passenger travel, both for business and for leisure, as the economies recover across the world, I think by mid-decade, the industry will be back on their way towards building 
30,000 aircraft, 35,000 aircraft fleets by the end of the decade. We estimated in our original forecast approaching 39,000 aircraft. I don't know if it will be like that, but certainly growth relative to now 35,000 aircraft, which will be an opportunity for a lot of growth across a number of different regions, companies, and business models. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today, Jerome. Thank you for an interesting discussion and the opportunity to share our transatlantic views on the state of the industry. No, thank you, Ken. And if our listener would like for a deep dive into one of these areas, please write in to us. Please get also to our website for more information than the document we were mentioning during this podcast. The Velocity Podcast is brought to you by management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. Please email us or tweet us if there's a topic you would like Ken and Jerome to explore further. We also invite you to subscribe so that you'll be notified when the next episode goes live.